All right. Hey, um, so this kind of the flow of this so far. The first section has just been, here's an overview. Second section was, let me give you some specific examples. Third section, like any good doctoral project, needs to address the primary objection, right? And there is an objection. Uh, while I have, you know, I've condensed a lot of my research, I'm hoping that you can see kind of what I'm sharing here with the faith language. Um, but I haven't yet addressed what I think is the primary pushback. The whole, the, the biggest, like, wait a second, Pete. What you're saying kind of makes sense, but again, what do we do with Ephesians 2, 8, 9 and many other places we're going to talk about? Uh, Paul is saying you've been saved by grace. It's not from yourself. It's not, you know, it's a gift from God. It's not by works. Nobody can boast about this. So how can I read a passage like this or other places like Galatians or, or many times in Romans where Paul says it's not by works, it's not by works, it's not by works, and yet stand here and say that I think faith is very volitional, active, like I'm choosing, I'm doing, obeying, right? A servant doing his duty. That seems like work to me. Uh, I would say it is work. Um, and I want you to know that I take this question very seriously. Like when I was doing this work, I, sometimes I take it seriously. This is my starting point. This was what I wrestled with from the beginning, like 10, 15 years ago, being like, I don't get it because faith seems so often like it's calling me to obey, but then it says I don't do anything. Ah, and I wrestle. And so I wanted to understand how this makes sense in light of everything. So I take it seriously and I've wrestled with it a lot. So what's the deal? And this is what I would say to us, the primary thing that I have come to. Number one, this opposition that seems to exist between faith and grace over here and works over here, this polarization is primarily, and I'm going to explain this, I'm not just going to say it, I, is it primarily a misunderstanding of what Paul's talking about? It's, it's first 21st century Americans reading things into these words that first century Jewish people did not read into it and didn't think. And I'll explain that. Um, I also want to talk about the fact that when you, it's not just that we misunderstand works, I think we misunderstand the word grace. Uh, and I want to explain grace a bit because that's, a, that's an important thing. The way I want to do it is to continue what I've been doing. I want to talk about relationships because this is all about relationships. Faith is relationships. And there was another relationship in the ancient world. This would be the least familiar. The first three I gave you are pretty clear. This one's going to be strange to a lot of you. Um, it is something, I, I'm going to, it's called patronage. Uh, patrons and clients. This might, I'm, trust me, if you're like, what are you talking about? I know this is unfamiliar, so I'm going to talk it through. So in the Greco-Roman world, most of the wealth and resources were held by a very small group of people. Today in America, we talk about the one percenters. We don't know what we're talking about. I'm sorry, we don't know what we're talking about. Um, there literally were one percenters in the ancient world. But the difference was not that one person was a billionaire and the other person makes $50,000, $70,000 a year. It was one person was a billionaire and the other person, you know, digs through garbage to eat. Um, the whole world was literally held by a small group of people and everyone else had nothing. Today in America, if you own a car and an iPhone, come on, right? But back then, nothing. They didn't have government programs. There was no welfare. There was no health care. There was no ability to go get a loan. You couldn't just go to college and get a better job. You were stuck with whatever you were born with. And if you were born into a rich ruling class, you were rich and a ruler if you weren't. So you were either a rich or a peasant. There was no middle class. So how could a lower class person do anything more with their life? What hope would there be? One 
you could rely on the generosity of somebody who had a lot of money. And this created a system, a social system known as patronage. Um, patronage was essentially, and, and I'll kind of summarize this simply, it was a social, a social construct whereby two people, one with resources and one without, would enter into a relationship together of what we would call quid pro quo or this for that, meaning I'll give you something, you give me something. Now, right when we hear that, we're already kind of like, oh, quid pro pro, that's like a bad word, you know, I'm trying to like, I'm using you to get stuff. This was the world they lived in. It just was the world they lived in. I have resources, you don't, I'm willing to offer them to you. Uh, and the whole concept, thus, of, of patronage was around the word reciprocity. I give, you give. It creates this circle, right? You give me, I give back to you. We both benefit from this. The best thing you can do, as much as you can, is to, over the next few minutes, completely just let go of everything that feels uncomfortable to you and just accept that whether it's right or wrong, it was a different culture. They did not live in our world today. This was a very powerful model, and it dominated the Roman landscape. This was everywhere. This was life, right? Everybody accepted this as reality. The wealthy person with resources, power, social access, whatever, would extend to someone who doesn't have it a favor, an opportunity, maybe a gift. Depending on what the person needed, this could be anything. It could be physical, goods, food. It could be literal money. I'm giving you a loan, uh, land, assistance, debt relief, or oftentimes favors because favors were a big deal. Sometimes simply being in the right room with the right people could like raise your stock. Just inviting you to a banquet could be a big deal. And giving you a seat at the right table was a favor. Like, if I could just meet this person, can I just come to your house? Okay, I'll allow it, right? Uh, legal advocacy, protection. Oh, I think they want to kill me. Oh, okay, I'll take care of you. I got some, I, I got some sway here, right? I'll step in for you. Um, anything that could help me, whatever it might be, to get ahead and make my life better, a wealthy person with resources could give that. And it was an act of what we would call generosity. Now, you and I, immediately, I'm just going to address it. You and I hear what I'm saying, and you don't think of generosity because you hear reciprocity, and reciprocity doesn't belong with generosity in American culture. If you're giving me something because you want something back, it's not generous. You're just wanting something from me. That is Americanism, not Romanism, okay? In the Greco-Roman world, it was different. This, this, they, and they still would use the word generosity. It would develop a bond. It would develop a relationship between these two people where the giver would be called a patron, I'm, I'm giving you something, and the person who's now been given something is now the client. We still use that word today in, you know, oftentimes even like law. The client can be someone who's, you know, whatever. But for them, a client was like, this person has given me something and now we're in this relationship together. It was a sort of informal social contract where the giving of the patron would start this relationship with the client. All of the Roman Empire was like this spider web of client-patron relationships. Like you could talk to a random person and be like, well, who are you a client to? Oh, who are they a client to? And who are you a patron? Like, you know, like you, everyone was a client to the emperor, and then the rich people would have these, and it was all like spider-webbed. And who, well, if you're a client to that person, you can't also be a client. You can't have two loyalties. You can't serve two masters. Like there's all these relationships, and they're all guided by reciprocity, um, where you, I would give and you would give. And it was the only way that people of lower class had any hope. So for, if you would talk to a person who's like a lower class peasant, they wouldn't be like, this is terrible. 
They'd be like, this is all I got. What can you give me? Let's do this. Now, why am I saying all this? Because it was within these relationships, these reciprocity, patron, client, wealthy, non-wealthy, giving, receiving, that we would often encounter the Greek word charis or the Latin word grati, gratis, which means grace. The word grace means, grace comes from the Latin grati, gratius, grateful, gracious, a gift or favor given with the intention of forming a relationship. Now, grace was different than just a normal gift because I could be like, oh, here you go, take it, walk away. That's not grace. Grace is here, let's start a friendship together, right? Let me help you and then maybe you can help me. Contrary to our modern uses today, in America, English, the word grace almost immediately sparks religion. Oh, that's like a Christian thing. Grace wasn't a religious word. It was a social word. It meant we're in this relationship together of giving and receiving. It was very common. The word was everywhere. Um, So it could refer to the attitude of a person. You could be a gracious person. But it usually could also just refer to the gift itself, the grace, the gift, whatever. But either way, it spoke of this cultural custom that dominated the whole network of society, of the richer people giving to the less people out of generosity, benefaction, in exchange for something back. Again, we need to talk about this. Like, let's just talk about the elephant in the room. Because being generous and giving gifts, we get. We give gifts all the time. What you and I struggle with is the idea or the very concept that you want something back? That's not generosity. That's not a gift. You're just, you're just indebting me to you. That is Western culture. It just is. I've heard the phrase, grace is a gift that requires nothing of you. That is something an American would say, not a Roman. A Roman would never say that. They would say the exact opposite. It seems downright contrary to our thinking to say, you you can't be generous and give and expect something back. But we have to understand that's just our culture. It's not what the word grace means. It's what we made it mean. It's quite clear in the Greco-Roman world that gift-giving was always strings attached. Always. (laughs) Right? You and I are like, it looks like you're giving me just, no, everything was strings attached. Cicero said this, When you're given a grace, it is responding to a grace is an absolute duty which all honorable people are socially required. It was to incur a social debt when somebody gave you a gift and it would have serious consequences if you ignored it. Like you would be like spurned and dishonored if you didn't respond to a grace. If somebody gave you something and you just walked away and gave nothing in return, you were a terrible person. Uh, the The famous scholar Seneca, the Roman Seneca said, grace is like playing catch. Or he also compared it like a dance. Like, I take a step, and then you take a step, and suddenly we're moving together. Or I toss you the ball, and you catch it. You're like, yeah, you toss it back, and we start going back and forth. And suddenly we're in this relationship. We're playing a game together. That's grace. It's forming this circle dance, this, this game we play. So being given a grace meant you returned it. If I don't return it, what am I? <laughs> I am ungratia. I have, not, I have not been gratias to your gratia. I have not returned your grace. You threw the ball to me, and I just took it and went home. And you're like, you jerk. I was trying to play a game here, right? You've got to return it. Otherwise, it's wasted. And this didn't mean you always gave an equal gift, though. And this is where it really gets important to us. Because, again, you're talking about power structures, wealthy people giving to poor people. Well, if I'm poor, 
what am I going to give back to you? Like, I needed the loan because I don't have any money, so I can't give you a loan back. If people of equal standing gave to each other, we'd call them friends. We wouldn't call them patrons and clients. So if I'm rich and you're rich, I'm like, oh, here's some jewels. Oh, well, here's some jewels back. That's grace, but it's friendship. Patrons and clients were when one person had more. So how does a client respond appropriately to a patron who gives a wealthy gift? There were three things in the ancient world. Um, uh, David De Silva wrote a whole book about this. You don't care. Uh, let me give you the three things he said. Uh, how do you respond to a grace if you can't equally pay back? In a culture of honor, uh, where your reputation was everything, you could respond by literally praise, honor, and public recognition. Which, just to be clear, was a big deal. Not as big a deal for us. We're kind of weirded out by it. It's like, oh, don't tell anyone I gave it to you. No, no, tell everyone I gave that to you. Uh, I think it was, uh, yeah, Cicero said, if somebody gives you a gift, publicize their generosity to the whole world, let everybody know. So what would happen is, let's say like I'm running for office. I want to become the senator and I need everyone to vote for me. I might go and give some gifts to people, like, hey, uh, here's some money. I heard your son wanted to get into college. Let me make that happen. Uh, is your daughter looking for a husband? I actually know a guy over here. <laughs> oh, thank you. Um, so maybe you could kind of go tell everyone I should be, of course. And you would have people that were basically like entourages that would go about town. Cicero is so magnanimous. You all should vote for him. You have no idea what he did for me. You would respond to, I can't give you any money back, but I'm going to tell everyone how amazing you are. So the patron benefits because their, their prestige is growing, which is a big deal in Roman culture. The other thing you could do is a favor. Um, man, I can't pay you back, but have you ever need anything from me? Ever had anyone give you something? Like, this is amazing. I can't give you back. But, and then like a month later, you're like, I heard your brakes went out. Can I fix the brakes in your car? I'm a mechanic. You know, I want to do a favor for you. So you would have wealthy patrons that had all these clients that were connected to them through grace and when they needed something, they could like, hey, uh, I need this done. Will you help me? Now, sometimes this got pretty ugly. And the best way, and if you really want to understand grace in the Roman culture, look at the Romans' descendants who continue to use grace, specifically the Godfather. Uh, the Godfather was a patron. If you've seen the movie The Godfather, he is a patron. So people would come to him and say, I need help, Godfather. Oh, I, I'm a, they're, they're approaching my business. They're trying to snuff me out. Help me. He's like, yeah, I do this thing for you. Yeah. But, you know, someday, that may never come, I will call upon you to maybe do a service for me. The Godfather is literally modern day patronage. I give, the, the powerful person gives gifts and protection and all this stuff, and then he calls in favors and people vote for them and all this kind of stuff. Um, and the, the Godfather are Romans, by the way. <laughs> They've continued that tradition for 2,000 years, um, the mafia. So it is. It really is. It's funny, but it really is. Um, they, they literally are Italians. Um, most importantly, though, and this is a big deal for us, and connected, similarly, the public honor, the praise, the if you ever need something, I'm here for you. But ultimately, there's just one basic fundamental word that they would use in their culture. When you are given a grace that you can't repay, the least but absolutely essential thing that you must return with is faith. So faith, pistis, or fides, was constantly connected to the word grati, grace. The two were always around each other. When I'm given a grace to start a friendship, I respond to that friendship by offering my loyal friendship to you. I can't pay you back, but you have my heart. 
right? I can't, I could never give back what you gave to me. It's too big. But if you ever need anything, I am with you. you I am your man, basically, right? And uh, Seneca talked about, if you want to give your faith as exchange, he said this, if you wish to make a return for grace, be willing to go into exile, pour forth your blood, undergo poverty or slanders. Meaning, go back to Maccabees. I don't care if you kill me, I will be pissed off. Seneca was saying, give that same pissed off to someone that offers you grace. They deserve it. If somebody is so generous with you, be loyal to them. Stand with them. Even if they go into poverty, go into poverty with them. You, you're, you're expected to. This would play out a lot in the political realm where leaders would offer grace to people to get their loyalty. Uh, Demetrius offered the Jewish people power and positions in his government if they would remain pissed off. I will, I will give you whatever you want if you just give me your loyalty and you, you, you stand by my leadership. Whenever there was a vacuum in power, like the king would die and you'd have three or four different people all wanting to become kings, they would go to all their clients and say, I'll give you more money, I'll do whatever you want. Support me to be king, right? That's patronage, patronage. So our modern cultural understanding of grace in the ancient world is tough because we don't think of grace as requiring anything. But grace always required something, especially faith. So when the Bible says grace through faith, this is, that's just patronage language. That's just like, yeah, of course, you've been given a gift. Offer, offer faith back. When the gift was too great to repay, I, I'll, I'll verbalize how great you are. I'll sing your praises. I will do whatever you want me to do. I will live for your service, and I will be loyal to you. Do you see how clearly those three things are called for us in the Bible? Everywhere. <laughs> sing God's praises. Do what he asks. Be loyal to him. There's significance here with the Bible. Now, the, words patrons, the word patron and clients never appear in the scriptures. But it was written in a culture that was everywhere part of their culture. So you didn't need to say it. You just knew it. Um, hearing the early Christians tell everyone how wonderful God's grace was would have sounded like a great, wealthy patron giving good gifts to everybody. And in return, asking for faith would have been very normal. Oh, cool. He gave us that. What does he want in return? Just your loyalty. That makes sense. And I believe it's appropriate to assume that God's grace, when spoken of by the biblical authors, would have been how Romans and Greeks would have used it. It wouldn't have been something different or weird. We've made it different. We've turned it into something else. But for them, when you're given a grace, you respond to it always, always, always. So why would we think that we're not supposed to respond to God's grace? Um, Throughout the Old Testament, we already saw God was a patron to the Jewish people. He came to rescue them, gave them a good land, gave them his own presence, blessed them, riches, milk flowing with milk and honey, right? A great patron. But it was in exchange, right? He said, he didn't just say, I want to give it to you. He said, if you obey me and keep my covenant, then you will be my treasure. You'll be my nation. You'll be my people. I'll be your patron God. I will take care of you. I'll make your life great. And I'm asking for loyalty in return. It makes us uncomfortable because of our own understanding of grace, but this is the Bible's use of grace. God gives and asks for one thing in return, faith. And so in Christ, we see this happening where not only, you know, so God is giving this to the Jewish people, but then in the New Testament, God pours out grace to the whole world and says, who wants to be part of my family? I'm going to give my patrons to anybody that wants it. You don't have to be Jewish. He lavishes his gifts on people. Become friends of his. That word friends is often patronage language. 
And we're invited, I love this verse um, in Ephesians. Paul says, I'm praying that you would know the hope which he's called you to, the riches of his inheritance, the great power for those who believe. I've almost kind of spiritualized this verse. It's all kind of like, I think Paul is like, dude's loaded. <laughs> right? Like God is loaded. You, you, want to be, you want to be connected to him. He's got some great stuff for you. What does he want in return? Well, four verses later, so you're saved by grace through faith. We'll come back to this. And what's crazy about this is, and this is another thing, in the ancient world, this is this will mess with us too. We hear the word grace, and we always attach the word unmerited or unearned. Grace wasn't unmerited. No grace was unmerited. Cicero said you should always consider the worth of the person you're giving. Don't waste grace on an unworthy person. If you've given to someone in the past, and they didn't respond well, don't ever give to them again. If your friend tells me that they, they were actually a bad person, don't give them a gift. Don't ever do that. Gifts, gifts given to bad people are badly given, Ben Sira said. He was, he was a Jewish person. Grace given to bad people is bad. But God demonstrates his love that while we were still sinners. What's amazing about the Christian understanding of grace isn't that it's a different kind of grace. It's that God is not acting in a way that you would expect a patron to act. God is doing something unusual. He is extending gifts to people who were ungrateful in the past. He is letting his rebels once again run his kingdom. And that's why it was like when the, when the Christians spoke about grace, they weren't making up a new word. They were saying, this is incredible. God is doing what nobody does. He's giving grace to us. We don't deserve it, right? And that's amazing. There's something, there's something incredible, which is important and is part of Christianity, that God's grace does come to us unearned. But while God's grace comes to us unearned, and I see that clearly in Scripture, nowhere do I see that God's grace is no strings attached. I see quite the opposite again and again. I see, I will give you this if you obey me, if you give faith to me. There are strings attached to God's grace. The strings attached are faith. You are saved by grace through faith. It's a gift that you didn't earn, but you are expected to respond to. As clients of a generous patron, we have an obligation to keep the dance going. He tossed the ball to us. Oh, thanks, God. No, no. Here, let's stay in a relationship together. And if we don't, Paul would say this. You've received God's grace in vain. You've wasted it. God was trying to start a game with you and you took your ball and went home. You wasted everything. You missed the point. Don't receive it in vain. How do you not receive it in vain? You respond to it by giving your faith. He's offering a relationship that you didn't deserve. You respond by continuing the relationship, by being loyal. He's offered you a ring and said, will you marry me? Cool ring, bro. See you later. <laughs> no. That's, that's taking your ring in vain. I, I'm responding to grace. Does that make sense? I know it's kind of unusual, but that's the first century. Grace demanded a response. The biblical's response is our giving of faith, the way we've defined it. Now, this doesn't mean in any way that we earn God's generosity. Again, I think it's clear from the scripture that when he says, by grace, not through ourselves, like other places, he's making the point that you can't say, well, God forgave me and God welcomed me back in because of how good I am. Or all. No, no, that's not. He's saying, no, we've got to understand. This is amazing. You didn't earn grace. You didn't do anything to deserve it. Quite the opposite. You were sinners. Grace 
is not deserved. You don't earn it. That's what makes it so amazing. But, big idea. There's a difference between earning a gift and responding to it. My kids don't earn gifts from me, but they better say thank you, those little brats. <laughs> Sorry, they're not watching. Um, we don't earn grace, we respond to it. So faith in God is our response to something he gave. Um, it's a misunderstanding to think that defining faith as human effort or action somehow minimizes grace. Um, I think faith as loyalty better clarifies grace. It's not what we do to earn it. It's what we do because we've been given it. Because you've been given grace, you choose to give him your heart, your loyalty, your commitment. It's the response to this, the first offer he made for a relationship that I then toss the ball back. I, continue, I follow his lead and we continue dancing together. Um, returning the gift with our loyalty, that's faith. Okay, last thing, um, and I... Right on target here. That's grace. But there's two parts of that verse. Um, Because we saw, I'll go back to it here. I can explain this, but what about this? Okay, Pete, what about this? And not only what's crazy about this, if you have your Bibles, you know, this is verse 9. Verse 10, after he says this, no one can boast, he says, For you have been created in Christ Jesus to do good works. And I'm like, what the refrigerator are you talking about, dude? Am I not works or am I doing works? Which is it, right? Like, how do I, what do I do with this idea that the Bible keeps telling me faith is somehow other than or apart from? In Romans 3, Paul says this, a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law, apart from works. How can faith be something that I do or a work or effort when Paul clearly says it should be separate from or apart from? And this is one of the things that messes me, messed me up the most growing up in Christian homes. Because I would be taught this. I would hear this. Sola fides, faith alone, not works, no effort. Martin Luther said it. You know, we don't work for our salvation. I'd be like, okay, so does that mean faith is something? What is faith then if it's not work? How do I reconcile this? So I want to end with this. I've got the last 10 minutes here. Um, what do I do with this passage? And I just want to say, like, um, I feel completely confident that if I don't explain it well, it's my fault. But there is a really good explanation for this passage. And I want to give it to you, and hopefully I do it well. I, I literally, this is like 20 pages I'm going to condense in 10 minutes. Um, I'll just do my best here. Let me walk through this. And... Uh, I think, again, like grace, the confusion is our understanding of words and culture. Because when you and I hear the word work, oh, that's work, that's effort. And literally, the Greek ergon is where we get ergonomic, like erg, measure work and erg. Um, it, it, does mean, it does mean work. Like, if I'm going to work today, I'm going to ergon. Um, he is saying work or effort. But what I want to point out is this. When Paul talks about work or works, he can use the same word in different contexts, just like faith, just like grace. And we've got to understand the context he's using it in. And I want to show you briefly how, if you understand Paul's context, away from maybe sometimes the way that we read it ourselves, it really does make a lot of sense. The first thing is this. Paul was a Jew. And Paul was primarily writing to people who were coming out of Jewishness 
or still saw themselves as Jews but were wrestling with as Christians, or he was writing to non-Jewish people, what he called Gentiles, who had Jewish friends who were telling them, well, this is what it means to be the people of God. We're Jewish. That's the people of God. Jesus was the Jewish Messiah, so if you want to be part of Judaism, here's what you got to do. That was the world that he was working in. You and I, 2,000 years later, don't live in that world. We might know some people who are Jewish, but we have no, like, there's nothing. I mean, imagine if half this room was Jewish, and like a quarter of those people weren't quite sure about Jesus as Messiah. The other quarter, no, we think he's the Messiah, but we're still Jewish. These people over here, not, like, we'd all be like, wait, what are we supposed to do? And they're like, you need to not cut your hair this way. And like, what are you talking about? Like, have you even been circumcised? Like, there's this idea of being Jewish. And Paul was Jewish. The question, though, is essentially this, and I could summarize it simply, what makes somebody Jewish? And people still wrestle that today. Like, what makes you Jewish? Oh, I think my parents were. Can I just say this? Like, this is weird for us. Being Jewish is not a nationality. There are Polish Jews and, and African Jews. and Like, being Jewish, is it a religion? And yet, like, people oftentimes just think of themselves culturally as Jewish. To be Jewish meant you were part of the people of God, oftentimes descended from Abraham, but essentially it came down to this one thing. You had a choice in your life. You had a decision to make. God offered you a relationship. And that relationship, the word covenant, marriage, agreement, was, I want you to join my family and be a part of what I'm doing. And the way that you do that is to essentially follow my rules. I, I'll, give you, I'll give you these rules, the things I want you to do, and if you choose to follow them, you're Jewish. The rabbis would speak of it as taking upon a yoke upon yourself, like a big piece of wood, like, okay, like a, an ox. Like I'm taking... I'm taking the law upon myself, and I'm choosing to do this. Um, so for the Jewish people, and this is important to understand, if I'm Jewish, I understand grace. Like, God freed us from Egypt. We were slaves. We didn't know who he was. God offered me the covenant agreement. Hey, do you want this? Choose this day who you'll serve. I didn't earn that, right? I didn't do anything to make God want to give me the law. I understand, it's grace. They use the word grace all the time. And they understood faith. They would respond to God's grace by being faithful to him. How would you be faithful? What would that look like? Well, simple. I would express my faith. Uh, this isn't working, sorry. Um, oh, maybe not. I would express my faith um, by obeying God's law. So when Paul says we are saved apart from the works of the law, there's a little bit of trickiness here because sometimes Paul includes of the law and other times he doesn't. In Ephesians, he just says works. But in Romans 3, he says works of the law. And I think it's reasonable to say that when Paul talks about not being saved or justified by works, if he does or doesn't include this phrase, he's always talking about this phrase. Works for Paul is not just doing stuff. Works of the law means obeying Torah. It means this book, what we call the Old Testament, the first five books of the Old Testament. That is the law. So for the Jewish people, they responded to God's grace, his offer of relationship, by obeying the law. So for the Jew, it wasn't faith versus works, like those two things were different. Jewish people understood it faith through works of the law. If I'm a Jew, I express my loyalty to God by doing what he told me. That's what faith means. 
It's not. It's nothing crazy. Faith means do what God tells me. Be loyal. So when Paul uses the phrase, they would see like, okay, he's saying faith through works, and then Paul's saying, no, no, it's not faith through works. It's no. He, Paul is changing the dynamic because um, they express faith by obeying commands, the things written on the page, um, which often would just again shorthand to work. So when Paul says works, he's not just, and that's the hard thing for us. We read it like, so he's talking about doing stuff, not just stuff something specific. He's talking about obeying the Torah, doing what the law commands. Now, some of these laws were basic right and wrong things, morality, don't murder, pretty simple. But some of them were not. A lot of them were not. A lot of things in the Torah, and this is, this. I wish I had more time, I'll try to get this quick. How do I know if you are actually obeying the law? You don't murder? Well, I don't really know you don't murder. What does it look like physically? Is there, is there a sign you can put in your front yard, you know? <laughs> Law 2020? I don't know. Like, no, well, here's what they would do. God gave rules that were specific for the Jewish people that were physical and visual. A circumcision, not as visible, but cut your hair a certain way. Uh, don't work on the Sabbath, which is a big deal. The whole world works seven days a week. These people are sitting on their butts all day on Sunday, um, Saturday. Like, uh, don't eat certain food. You know, don't even eat pork or anything. Like, these were external. They had nothing to do with morality, right and wrong. They were ways that if you followed it, if you did those things, the whole world would see, oh, they're a Jew. That's how you know. The external things. Look at their hair. Look at their clothes. They, don't, they won't come to my house because I'm a Gentile. They won't eat this thing that I made for them. All these external things made you externally Jewish. The world would see outside. But it's not that being circumcised or not eating, on the, not eating things or on the Sabbath, it's not that those things are good of themselves. It's that they were just things that said, okay, here it is. What mattered when I did those things, think about this, when I did those things, I was communicating something. I was saying, I have faith in God, and I'll demonstrate it by obeying everything he said. So you can look at me and say, that's a person who has faith in God. He'll look at him. He's, he's doing all the things he's supposed to do. And Paul said, I did everything. I, did, I didn't do any of the stuff I was supposed to do. I followed the letter of the law. I was a good and faithful Jewish Pharisee, Paul said. Something changed. These external things, obeying the law, my whole life, Paul said, I had faith in God. At no point does Paul ever say he didn't have faith. Paul understood his whole life having faith in God, but he expressed it by obeying the Torah, by doing what the law said. And for him, that's works. That's works of law. And I'm, I'm, it's not that I'm saved because I do them. And this is important. This is so important. I don't think a Jewish person would say, I'm saved because I do those things. A Jewish person would say, I do all those things because I have faith in God that he saved me and I'm part of his family. And Paul is agreeing with that. He's like, yeah, yeah, I know. We're, we're in the same place. I think that when he was talking to Jewish people and he said, you're not saved, you're saved by grace through faith. I actually think a lot of Jews would have been like, well, duh, of course, we know that. We're saved by our loyalty to God, responding to his grace. It's the not through works, though, that messed them up. Because here's the deal. Their whole lives, how do I show God I'm loyal to him? Don't eat pork. Don't work on the Sabbath. Don't mix with Gentiles. Don't cut your beard this way. Okay, 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 okay. Follow the law. Follow the word of God. But what happens when the word of God becomes flesh and starts walking among us and says, hmm, follow me. 
but, okay, but I'm following God. No, 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 follow God by following me. Well, now there's a tension here. Well, do you, do you, do you still want me to be circumcised? I don't care. I already did it. Um, <laughs> he says, follow me. Give me your faith rather than give Torah your faith. But think about that. Look at that process. Um, suddenly for Paul, what had been I show my faith through works of law now becomes I show my faith through obedience to Jesus, the law who's become flesh and walked among us. Faith has not changed its meaning. When Paul says we're saved by a faith apart from works of law, he's not saying, let me completely redefine the word faith. It has nothing to do with human action. No, no, he's saying faith is still what it is, but we used to express it when we would obey the law. But not something new has happened. The law has become a person. So now if you want to express faith, be loyal to Jesus and do what he tells you. And Jesus isn't interested in Sabbath and not eating pork. He doesn't care anymore. So that stuff's kind of gone away. You don't have to worry about it. And the people that are like, no, I've done this my whole life. I can't stop doing this. Paul's like, guys, 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 that never saved you anyway. It was just an external sign of an inner reality, right? Yeah. So here's what I like to say. It's not that Paul has now made faith and works as human effort these opposite things. I would say it this way. It's like we're going somewhere. We have a destination in mind. Like we've typed into, hey Siri, you know, give me directions to my parents' house. And Siri says, okay, go this way. And you're going that way and you're following it. And all of a sudden Siri says, a shorter route has appeared. And you're like, would you like to select? It'll save you seven minutes. You're like, yes. And it reroutes you this way. I'm still going to the same place, aren't I? But I'm getting there differently. Paul is saying faith's destination is the same. It's loyalty to God. But we've been rerouted. We're no longer doing it through the law. We're now doing it through Jesus. Faith hasn't changed. The way I express it has changed. Faith is still loyal obedience to God. But I no longer pick up the book and say, what exactly does it tell me to do? I follow the person and say, what exactly do you tell me to do? We're getting the same place. I'm still choosing to follow God, but now I'm doing it through his Christ, his king. He's shifted, he's redirected me, he's rerouted me. And if I've spent my whole life saying, no, 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 I must never eat pork, that's being faithful. And now Jesus is like, that was in the past, I don't care about that anymore. You have a crisis, right? I can't just, I can't just change everything my whole life. And this is what Paul, is, when he writes the book of Galatians, he's speaking into this tension that existed. People at the same room were like, I don't eat pork. You don't eat, you eat pork? What? Come on. Oh, no, Jesus told me I don't worry about that anymore. How can it be, right? There's this tension. Paul's saying, guys, guys, I get it. I know it's hard. But listen, it never was what saved us. You see, guys, we always knew this. No one is justified by works of the law, but faith in Jesus. We're not justified. We were never right because we did all those things. We were right because we had faith in God and we expressed them through those things. But now we're called to express them by following the Messiah, the living word. Paul then defends this by pointing back to Abraham. He says, think about this, guys. What about Abraham? Remember? He was, he was righteous. He had faith, right? Did he follow the law? No, the law didn't exist yet, Right? So how could Abraham be righteous before God if he didn't have the law? It's because what he had was faith, and faith is always what mattered. So for you, if you have faith, you're a child of Abraham. The inner commitment, the loyalty to God is what matters. It's just now being expressed differently. 
So you're still saved by grace through faith. We've always believed that, but it's not through the law. It's through Jesus, who is calling us to good works because we've been entrusted to care for his world. So I'm a descendant of Abraham because I share his faith, not because I share his haircut. And so that's true of all of us. And Paul has to work with this new community. And that's why he says this, why he says this. What made someone Jewish, he'll say this in Romans, guys, what made you Jewish was never that you did all this stuff. A Jew is not a Jew outwardly, but one inwardly, he says in Romans, I think three or two. Um, two. Like, like circumcision isn't a physical thing, it's an internal spiritual thing, basically. Like the circumcision of the heart is what saved you, the fact that you were loyal to God. So don't worry about that stuff. Just give it to Jesus and it's the same thing. Um, and so from this vantage point, we can see that there's really no need to have this weird distinction, this tension in our head. Oh, the Bible says it's not work, it's not work. No, no, it says it's not Torah, it's not law. It's obedience to Jesus, which you better believe is work. It's hard. Jesus said, count the cost. Don't build this building unless you're prepared to finish it. Don't, don't, don't come follow me unless you're prepared to give up everything, right? It's a, it's a serious call. It's faith, but it's not continuing to follow the Old Testament law. So as a follower of Jesus, when people say, should I be following the Old Testament? You can read it, but no, I follow Jesus, not the Old Testament. Um, and that's a whole other talk. But, um, yeah, there's no reason. For 500 years, we've been wrestling. Since the Reformation, oh, faith isn't work, all this kind of stuff. I don't think we need to do it. Um, Paul is addressing the way in which God is now calling me to faith by bending my knee to King Jesus and saying, you tell me where to go. By saying, I am merely a servant. Whatever you tell me, I'll do it. By saying, I want to be trustworthy like you are. Yes, tell me what to do, and I'll go and do it. Um, He has become the embodiment of the Torah. He's living it. So faith through works is now faith through him. I guess I would just say, as we kind of wrap this up, again, let me just say this. The goal of this whole morning was not to convince you that faith never means belief. I hope you didn't get that. The goal of this was to show how in certain relationships we've had this strong sense of solidarity, of loyalty, of commitment, even obedience. And that when we look at relationships in the Bible, we see that those are the kind of things that were compared with God. And the question, I think, was really more than exactly what does faith mean, because it has different meanings. The biggest question for us is what kind of relationship are we in with God? Like, that really is kind of like a big question there. Because if you can answer that question, then you can look at faith and say, well, what did faith mean? And we see some of these. We see that we're a spouse in a committed marriage. Isaiah, Hosea, all other places. Like, you are my bro- we're the bride of Christ. What does that mean for us? What does faith mean if you're in a committed marriage? Fidelity. We're said children of a loving father. Remember that right at the beginning, a few hours ago, the soldier said, don't send those guys to fight because they're family and they won't fight each other. You are a child in the household of God. What would it look like to be faithful to a father, right? In the Roman world, that was a huge deal. To not respect and honor your father was a massive issue. We're subjects of a righteous king. He's calling us for allegiance. Are we giving it? Uh, we're soldiers in an army, right? How did the soldiers use the word faith? To death. <laughs> we're servants to a gracious Lord. And he's saying, will you just do your duty like I told you? And we're stewards over his property. We are entrusted. And in all of these pictures, maybe none of them are perfect. They all fall apart at certain places. But all of them together present faith to us. And I think a very coherent way that I have been called to give him my life and my loyalty. Um, 
that the meaning of faith that he is looking for is not, he just believes and stuff, and then, you know, when you die, you'll be okay. It's join me in changing your life in this world today. Become the person I've created and called you to be today. Come and follow me and find life today. Change your direction, repent, and come this way. And when you do, when you start doing the things I tell you to do, if you just say, you know what, I'm your servant, whatever you tell me to do, you're actually going to find I'm a really, really good master. If you just say, just fine, I'll just bend the knee, you're going to find that I am the king the whole world has been longing to follow. If you'll just say, okay, I'll, I'll run it the way you want to run it, you'll find I know what I'm talking about because I built it. And if you run it the way I tell you to run it, it's going to be great. So I would end, I guess, with a question when someone says, do you have faith? What is the answer? Yeah, I believe in God. Or is it, I've pledged my loyalty to the king. I'm never going back. And it's changed my life. 